0: As a sales manager, you are judged by the performance of your team and you're praised when they do well. But one thing that you've not been able to figure out is how to get everyone on your team consistently hitting quota every single month. On the Snack Size Sales Podcast, we discuss the science of selling STEM. Sales leadership in the science, technology, engineering, and manufacturing fields is difficult. You will learn from sales managers just like you that will give you actionable insights and tips on how to develop as a leader and achieve your revenue targets every single month. So pop your headphones in and get ready to listen to my guest today. They will give you information and inspiration to ensure that you have actionable insights that you can put into place today. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Science of Selling STEM. Today, I am so excited. I feel like I am in the presence of royalty, like I'm interviewing a podcaster that has been podcasting since before I even knew what a podcast was. Andy Paul, how are you today?
1: i'm fine thank you for having me
0: (laughs) (laughs) so let me tell you guys i I know i mean like when you're in the presence of royalty you have to Mm. let them know right Mm. podcasting (laughs) as we both know it is a labor of love
1: and so you
0: have been doing it for a long time seven years let me tell you guys a little bit about andy he has a hit podcast Accelerates your sales, and it was acquired by Ring DNA in 2020. It has since been renamed as Sales Enablement with Andy Paul. This show continues to inspire thousands of sales professionals each week. Andy has also written two award winning books Zero Time Selling and amp up your sales. He is ranked number eight on LinkedIn's list of top 50 global sales experts. And he's consulted with some of the biggest businesses in the world, including Square, Philips, Grubhub, and more, making him one of the leading voices in the sales industry today. And I think this must've been submitted before your latest book came out, but we'll get into that later.
1: <laughs> yes, a third, a third book. Yes, very third book.
0: That. So how did you start your career? And becomes so amazing that a giant company wanted to buy your podcast. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, they were they're actually kind of a smaller company, but still, nonetheless, they wanted to buy it. Yes, um, gosh, I started my computer and tech sale, or I, excuse me, my career in tech sales, selling computer systems to you know at the time when computer systems were rooms full of equipment uh, back in the day, and did that. I uh, got promoted to management fairly quickly doing that. And enjoyed that, though, you know, sort of under-enabled, as most managers are in their first jobs. Um, But then had sort of this adventure in Silicon Valley where I went to work for Apple in the very early days of Apple, and then a variety of other startups, and eventually found myself in the satellite communications business where I was selling large, complex satellite communication systems to some of the world's largest companies, working for startups, you know, for small companies. So the challenge was, how do we, as a small company, go compete for seven, eight, nine-figure deals against really large tech companies and win. So that sort of became my specialty. Then started my own company in 2000, and, which was designed to help small companies learn how to compete for big deals with, against uh, big competitors. Did that until about 10 years ago. And so I started writing my books and uh, sort of down this path of being sort of a sales thought leader, quote unquote. Started my podcast in 2015, as you said, it uh Initially called Accelerate, and then uh, acquired in 2020, and we renamed it to Sales Enablement with Andy Paul. And now with 1,043 episodes, I think as of this week, we're still going strong. And yes, just wow. published my, my third book, Sell Without Selling Out.
0: Wow. So I want to kind of go all the way back to the beginning. And you said mm. something that... I think a lot of people, they don't quite understand what the term means. So, you said you moved it from being an individual contributor to being a sales manager, but you weren't quite enabled. So, help us understand what that means to be enabled sure. as a sales manager.
1: Well, it's a great question because I don't think any of them really are, unfortunately. Is, you know, we move people into roles of authority and positions of authority and responsibility without educating them and just some of the basics. Yeah, No one taught me how to coach somebody, right? I mean, I think I became pretty good at it, but it was just through trial and error, right? It wasn't through anybody coaching me how to do it or training me how to do it. We're in a performance business and sales, right? It's like athletics to some degree or professional sports. When do we ever train sales managers how to help people perform better, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, We tend to say, well, go make more calls, send more emails, so on. But you know, we're in this performance business and, and we don't teach managers anything about performance improvement. And I can sort of go down the list. So it's sort of left to fend for yourself. And some people, yeah, you know, are fortunate. I think I worked for good bosses at several points in my career that, you know, I could see what they did and, you know, they sort of modeled it for the behavior that I thought was good. So I could take examples from them. But even to this day, we underinvest in managers. And it's, they're really, yes, I've done this a couple times. We've polled um, salespeople and said, so where do you learn how to sell? And the biggest influence is not training. That's actually on the list of things. It's relatively low down the list. It's it's their managers. It's their peers. Well, if that's the case, if the managers are the most influential people oftentimes in a young seller's life, a new seller's life, why aren't we helping the managers get better?
0: Mm-hmm. And like you're singing my song oh, okay. i i literally I, i'm these days I, i'm so irritated on linkedin i see all these people and they are appealing directly to the seller like i'm going to teach you how to cold call i'm going to teach you how to write emails i'm going to teach you how to do this this and that i'm like you're talking to the wrong people. We need to fix the managers, right? We fix the managers, we fix the team. And so when we talk about enabling sales managers, giving them the playbook or the toolbox, I think that is such a huge gap in our current market space.
1: Oh, absolutely. So I, I make the case, and this is really not hyperbole, I'm actually serious about this, is that we spend, I think the last estimate I saw from LinkedIn made $15 billion a year in sales training in the United States, of which let's just say 90% of it, it's probably more, but 90% of it spent on individual contributors and 10% on managers. And I would advocate that we reverse those percentages and that if we actually spent 90%, not that we necessarily could on the number of sales managers, out there, but we spent 90% of that money on sales managers, we'd actually end up with better results.
0: I 100% agree. And I think that When, even when you have those sales trainings, right, what do the managers do? They sit in the back of the room and they're on their computer. They're not even paying attention. And then during the breaks, they're like, oh yeah. Hey, what about this deal? What I mean, and so it is such a huge problem, but you're right. If we spent more, even if we split that in half and did 50, 50, Mm -hmm. the, the industry wouldn't like it because they wouldn't make as much money, right? Because once you enable those sales managers, then the teams follow right along.
1: No, I, I agree. You're 100%. I think, yeah, it doesn't have to be you know 90% spent on managers, but a higher fraction. But we just have this cultural issue in sales, which is this assumption that we give somebody a title, they know what they're talking about, which is so unfair to those people in those roles. I feel bad for frontline sales managers in today's environment because there's so much pressure on them. They have their sales teams, especially in the tech business. You know, they've got their AEs churning every year. They've got uh, the CROs are only lasting twelve to fifteen months these days, so their supervisors are churning quickly. It's like, let's help them because these are the most, I think the most important people in the chain. I mean, yes, the individual contributors do the actual selling for the most part, but these are the people that make the whole thing work, to your point.
0: Mm. So when you started your business in 2000, Mm -hmm. what was your mindset? Why did you say, you know what? I've done the corporate thing. Now I want to transition and start my own business.
1: It was two things. One is, was very personal, which was, I've been, the previous 15 years, I've been traveling extensively, you know, over a quarter million miles a year type thing. And a lot of it overseas. And I had missed my daughter's birthday And I said, well, that's not me. I don't want to do that. So starting my own business was a way to sort of step off the the hamster wheel, if you will. And I wanted to be the dad who was there. So having my own business sort of gave me that flexibility. And for, at that point, my kids were 12 and 10, is, yeah, for the next eight years, I was that dad at every single lacrosse game, soccer game, theater performance, dance performance. I think people... Start to take pity on me, cause like save a life, cause he's always here.
0: <laughs>
1: but I had that flexibility and used it in building my business. I yeah you know, was able to sort of control the schedule to a large degree, and so I just didn't miss a thing. And for me, that was really important at that time. And yeah, I'm sure I sacrificed income and some other things in the short term, but yeah, would never never regret that at all. So that was yeah you know, one reason. Another reason was just. Yeah, I'd been in one business for 15 years in the satellite communications business, and I was ready for a new challenge. Mm.
0: Yeah, the quality of life, right? I think a lot of times as salespeople and sales leaders, we we think that this, it just comes with the territory. And I can remember doing the same thing. I would literally get their calendar at the beginning of the school year and put all their stuff on and I'd be traveling around it. And sometimes I would like fly in the morning for something that was happening at noon, right? Because I was right. like, I want to be there. And what that did to me was I would just be so exhausted, right? And like you're half one foot in and one foot out. And so, like, that quality of life and that balance that when you start your own business, you you kind of get that back. But, yeah, do you lose the opportunity of making as much money as a, a Fortune 100 company can? But I think that people have to make that decision. What is more important right now in my life?
1: Yeah, and it was temporary to some degree. But, again, I'd never give those moments back and, quite frankly, missed them. You know, and I, I don't know how old your kids are, but, I mean, it's like, you know, in my – Son had been very involved in the sport of lacrosse all the way through college. You know, we get to his last game in college, it's like, he was done with it. <laughs> his mom and I were both like, we're going to miss this. When <laughs> I mean, you miss the opportunity to see your kids do things. And um, so, yeah, being able to arrange things so I could do that, I was very fortunate, but it was yeah, intentional.
0: And so your business, um, was it Sales House? Was, is that the
1: No, so my consulting company I call Zero Time Selling, which is the name of my first book. And yeah, so work guys did was work primarily with companies that, in the early days, the companies that um, had sort of, I'd call mature startups, they had reached a certain point and then their growth stalled. And Mm. oftentimes they were sort of at a loss to figure out why. Why they'd lost the recipe, why they'd been able to grow successfully for five years or 15 years in some cases. And so, uh, yeah, I would come in and analyze the situation and work with the CEO and the sales leadership to turn things around.
0: Mm, Okay, so very strategic in nature, really diagnosing Mm -hmm. and understanding what specifically is going on within the organization.
1: Well, and then getting very tactical from an execution standpoint. So that's, for me, I view that actually as with the strategic, the second is just the tactical execution on making deals happen. And that's, I love that part. And so I still do that uh, work today. I do it both with companies. I do it with individuals, you know, high performing individuals that I coach on a one-on-one basis that, um, yeah, this, you're looking for the outside, they're making a ton of money and they're hitting their numbers. But, you know, these people that want to take it to the next level and do even better.
0: Mm, that's awesome. <laughs> because, you know, there, I think that the guys that people always think about when they think about sales consultants and, you know, people in our world is that your sales have to be low or you have to be like a low performer. But right. that's not always the thing, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Somebody asked me once, you know, how did I, what sort of the profile of the companies that I'd work with? And I'd say, well, by and large, they're all pretty successful. I'd be like, what do you mean? I said, well, yeah, those are the best clients because they're the ones that say, I know we can be even better. Yeah, I had one client that I worked with who he was a serial entrepreneur and I was working with him, I think on his third company. And he just did that every year. He said, I bring in a consultant, right? As I know that I don't know everything and yeah, we're doing pretty well, but I know that I as a CEO need to get smarter. So I bring people in to help me. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's a great perspective to have. I, another time somebody asked me, you know, how did you, how could you sort of qualify your, your customers potential clients? And I'd say, well, this is yeah, I'd go and meet them in person before we signed the deal. I said I'd look at the size, how big of a stack of books they had on their desk. Hmm. If they had a big stack of books, they were my person. If they didn't have books, they weren't gonna be my person. Hmm. and so yeah, I mean, I <laughs> people think it's funny, but yeah, as a consultant, I worked with successful companies
0: Ah, that's good it's it's not the sometimes i. I used to tell people, oh, I like working with the hot mess, you know, the company that's really messed up, but yeah, no, <laughs> it's way too much work, right? It's a lot of work.
1: Yeah. And you serve, sort of, if you're in the consulting business, you're listening to so thinking about, okay, yeah, the temptation is to say, yeah, I need to look for companies that are really screwed up and the hot messes. And it's like, yeah, not really. I mean, you want the people who are dedicated learners, you know, other things I look for as CEOs who are members of YPO or EO or Vistage, I mean, they were, again, people committed to learning. Mm-hmm. And so if they were doing that, then again, that was another great, for me, another great indicator that, yeah, we had a chance of making that successful.
0: Mm. So you have written three books thus far. Yeah. Tell me about, what was your inspiration for that very first book?
1: I just said felt like I'd had a book inside me for a while and I'd wanted to write one for a long time. And I just, I hadn't, and yeah, in 2010, I got married for a second time and yeah, my wife was just incredibly supportive and urged me to do it, knew I had wanted to do it. And yeah, I think she inspired me to invest the time and effort to do it. And I, like a lot of sort of consultants who write books book as calling cards, right? This is yeah, you know, a statement of who I am. Excuse me, is, uh, yeah, it sort of caught on though. That was sort of unexpected. I didn't think anybody would pay attention to it, quite frankly. And it yeah, became sort of popular unless it won an award and so on. So I was like, oh, wow, people maybe do want to hear what I have to say. And that sort of, yeah, started me down this path. Now three books and yeah, 1,043 podcast episodes.
0: So tell us more about, because there's so many people who are like, I want to write a book, but maybe is it going to be successful? Tell us about some of the tips that you would give some, a new author, how to make a book successful.
1: <sighs> Still learning that. I think gotten better over the course of, of three books. I think so. One thing is there's lots of different publishing options these days. But the one thing everybody needs is everybody needs a really good editor. Whether you want to self publish, whether you work with a hybrid publisher, whether you want to try to do a conventional publisher, a traditional publisher is in terms of making a good product, which is really what you're doing, is you need that outside perspective that's really going to challenge you and and work with you and. And I was really fortunate. Yeah, unfortunately, my first book, I had hired a, an editor who was okay, but was more sort of following my leads. And then the second book with a traditional publisher, the editor was not very good at all and didn't really help. But this this book, Sell Without Selling Out, that I just published, yeah, I worked with a fantastic editor. She worked for the publisher. She worked hand-in-hand with me for the better part of four months on the book, maybe even a little, little bit longer. And it just made all the difference in the world. So I mean, mm-hmm. books are really collaborative. And that's the lesson I learned after the first two that, actually the first one was that, yeah, it's a collaborative effort. It's the editor. It's just a big part of it. If you find the right person, if the publisher has the right person. So that's one bit of advice. The other piece of advice is that if you plan on writing a book, investing the effort, then plan on selling some. And, well, you laugh, but I mean, I have a lot of people on my show that want to be guests and they said, I've written this book or, and, you know, I'll research the book and I'll look at it and say, okay, it's been published. You know, It's been out on the market for two years and it has 20 reviews on Amazon. And it's like, yeah, what are you trying to do to market the book? And you went to all this effort. So what I encourage authors, and I actually run a, a mastermind group for aspiring sales authors, hmm. is really f- invest time to build your platform. Right, Build your audience before you sell, before you write the book. Because uh, it makes it easier to find an audience for the book. So invest the time if you want to be a thought leader. Which, uh, if you want to write a book, clearly you do, is invest the time on primarily LinkedIn to build a following, to express yourself out there, to even test your material if you source. I oftentimes you know use the analogy of LinkedIn sort of being like the out of town comedy club for you know a comic that wants to try out their new material. Yeah, that's what LinkedIn's for. It's it's there. It's public, but you're there sort of to. Figure out what you think and what you believe in and what resonates with an audience. So you're sort of doing market research to some degree. So it's really important if you're thinking about building a book to sort of long, or writing a book, excuse me, to sort of have a little longer term plan and say, yeah, how am I going to pair myself for that? Because also you make yourself more attractive to publishers if you have an established audience on LinkedIn as well.
0: Mm-hmm. So one thing that I find so, so amazing about the advice that you gave on writing a book, I feel like it's the same thing that you, you preach and you talk about when you say that, hey, yep, you want to be a good sales manager. You want to be a good leader. You need help, right? Your editor, that's mm-hmm. kind of like your coach. Um, mm-hmm. And then you're like, okay, uh, on LinkedIn, sometimes it might boost. Sometimes it might not. But you got to try, right? You got to put yourself out what? there. To at least get moving.
1: Yeah. Well, I think people that, I mean, it's, you do, you feel this with the podcast. I know I do too, is, is like when you first start, it's like sort of afraid to put yourself out there, right? Because you're afraid somebody might say something about a negative or whatever. I mean, I remember when I first started doing paid speaking in public, uh, I'd come back from a speaking event and my wife would say, well, how did it go? I'd say, well, no one stood up and called me an idiot, so I think it was okay. <laughs> and that was sort of my bar, right? <laughs> it's just... Mm-hmm. Because you have that fear when you first start putting yourself out there. You, you know, you write a book, you put the book out there. It's you know, even with third book, there's still sort of this trepidation about, you know, is anybody gonna like it? Mm-hmm. So, in building your audience in advance of writing a book, you sort of have to conquer that fear to some degree and get accustomed to putting your opinions out there. And for me, the great thing about LinkedIn is not necessarily the quality of what's put out there because it's on uneven quality. That's fine. But the fact that people are are doing it because I don't know, we don't know where the next great insight's gonna come from or the next great idea is gonna come from. And I don't think it has to be, yeah, somebody like me that's been in the business forever. I think, hell, somebody, you know, two years in their career, if they've got this insight about, yeah, there's a different way we could do, you know, this aspect of selling, put it out there. Let's socialize it.
0: So when you think about thought leadership, what are some of the things that you find most important? Because you said, hey, build your your tribe, your community, have a engaging group of people that you almost can kind of drop into, you know, a book launch or whatever you're doing. Right. So when you think about thought leadership, what are some of the things that have not gotten so good for you? And some of the things that you're like, oh, this is great.
1: Well, you know, the things that aren't Great. It's just, yeah. Sometimes you write things that people just don't like, and that's fine. But it's it's the consistency is really the key. You just have to commit to doing it and doing it on a frequent basis, and just having a point of view. I for me, that's really the important thing. I think if you're even if you're not a thought leader as a profession, but you're in sales, you have this increasing obligation to have thought leadership as part of what you do. Is we know that buyers study from rain group two year about two years ago you know 82 percent of buyers look at a seller's LinkedIn profile before they speak with them for the first time what are they looking for they're looking for are you worth investing their time in you right so what do you stand for what do you believe does anybody know can they find out by looking at your LinkedIn profile you know what separates you from the next salesperson because at the end of the day we know that in the overwhelming majority of cases the decision the buyer makes, the difference between you and another vendor is you, the seller. So you know, what's that impression you're creating on the buyer? And when do you start creating that impression? I think it starts, if they're looking at your LinkedIn profile, that's going to be their first impression of you, Mm. oftentimes. So what should they find there? And so I think sellers that don't spend some amount of time, and we're in this profession, is expressing and having an opinion about selling, about their customers, about their you know, market the customers are in and so on. It doesn't you're doing yourself a disservice.
0: And so you have this amazing new book, Sell Without Selling Out, right? And oh, a, a, a lot of times I know that authors, thought leaders, typically come up with ideas books based on things that annoy them or things that they're seeing in the marketplace or they're like, okay, you guys are getting it wrong. What was your inspiration for this latest book that you've written?
1: Well, sort yes, of What you said is, is that we're just not, and we in B2B selling, we're just not getting any better at it, right? As we've had over the, over the last 10, 15 years, we've had this little gold rush of incredible technology, marketing automation, sales automation, sales technology. And yet you look at the results that companies are achieving or individual sellers are achieving. And you look at some of the research that's done and you know, we see, all see the research. Oh, the percentage of sales reps hitting quotas dropping. Win rates are dropping. You know, sellers are churning more frequently. You know, we All these data points are saying, huh, what's going wrong here? Why aren't we able to take advantage of this technology and do better? And do better in the sense of creating better experiences for the buyer, That's really the bottom line, right? And so, yeah, just over the course of all the conversations on my podcast and, and my own work with companies, it was just clear that there was sort of this impediment. And I think a lot of the impediment is just how we perceive what our job is as sellers. And yet there's plenty of counterexamples, and I just wanted to draw those out in the book and say, yeah, here's a different path that more focused on the buyer and the experiences the buyer has that to some people may say, well, geez, seems a little, you know, counter to what we're doing. Seems a little soft, maybe. But the fact is, it's actually a faster path to an order, a faster path to increasing your win rates than sort of the stereotypical salesy behavior that sellers are known for, mm-hmm. and <laughs> that sellers, yeah, you know, make buyers cringe when sellers do it.
0: <laughs> yes, it's very, very unfortunate when. As a seller, you're just so in your mind and you're like, this is how things have to go. And I really don't care about you. And I'm just talking, mm-hmm. talking and I'm vomiting product information. And I'm doing this and I'm doing it. And it's like, you lost the sale before you even started. Like five minutes in, the sale was already lost.
1: Oh, yeah. Probably 10 seconds in. <laughs> well, it's, as we know that, again, I wrote about this in my second book is this, there's this body of science about how people form perceptions of other people. and But one of the things that always stuck in my mind was we do that within a quarter of a second. Mm-hmm. So I like can figure, and the example they use in some of the study was you know, people meeting people, let's say, in a social setting or a bar, or, you know, a man and a woman or you know a potential romantic partner. you make making a perception like this. And if you think your buyers aren't doing the same thing about you, you're mistaken. They are. And what we know about, again, from the science of perception, is that once a buyer forms a perception of you in their mind... It's very hard for them to change it, yeah. even when they're given evidence that directly contradicts that perception. And the example I like to give is, you know, if you imagine that you know, you live on some suburban street somewhere and the police show up at your neighbor's home and drag the guy out of bed and walk him away in handcuffs and all the neighbors are out in the, looking at what's going on. Now, the day later, police say, oh, mistaken identity, not the person at all, never mind. What does everybody think about the neighbor? Mm. He's a crook. Something wrong is bad person. Even though it's nothing at all, right? Well, this is this is sort of what happens is, you know, if you show up and, uh, you know, one of my favorites is you act too familiar too quickly with a buyer, for instance. Yeah, I hate it when male sellers presume too early in the relationship they can call a guy buddy or pal, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just, it's off-putting to a lot of people, right? You have to earn the right to be able to call somebody that. Well, they form that perception of you. A little lazy, doesn't think things through, you know, presumes makes presumptions that shouldn't, yeah, what's the person we like to work with going through this process? Uh, maybe not, right? Mm-hmm. Just from that little thing, just like that. Yeah. So in sales, we have to be you know, incredibly intentional about the impressions we create at all times. Mm. And it may seem like a small thing, but i like to say in sales, there are no small things.
0: Nope there aren't. And you know, the old cliche first impressions last is it's true because I've had people who are like, Hey Wes, I'm like, excuse me, who gave you permission to call me Wes? Right? Like, right. who are yeah. you? Like, that's unacceptable.
1: Right. I mean, no. you it affects how you interact with that person. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, um, uh, when I post about that on LinkedIn, I post about it a couple of times. This is, is yeah, young, mostly young male sellers really hate that that I call them out on it because they think, yeah, we're just, we're being ourselves. It's like, no, I, I encourage people to be yourself, but you earn the right also to do certain things. Yeah, you know, much like you earn the right through building trust with the buyer to ask them more detailed questions that you know force them to reveal information they wouldn't normally reveal. Mm-hmm. They don't have to, just because you ask them a question, they don't have to answer it completely or fully or truthfully. You earn the right to get that.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I think that so many times when we have these, I like to say outside of the box ideas in sales, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of pushback, right? Because it's like, well, we've been doing this for 15 or 20 years and it's been working. And you're like, okay, let's look at the data. Who is it actually working for? Oh, the top two or three salespeople. Well, what about everyone else, right? And when you're saying, hey, Less people are hitting quota, but maybe the company is still hitting their targets. But if you look at the spread, you only have a small percentage of the team that's doing it. Right. And so it's like, but we have to give a framework. We have to help everyone understand the why and the how. Don't just give them scripts and tell them to go do it.
1: Exactly. Oh, couldn't have said it better. Rarely do we give people the why behind the how. hmm and so people have sort of this, yeah, robotic approach to selling and so on. That's one of the things I tried to accomplish in the book with, you know, my four pillars of selling in is get into detail about the why behind the how and then provide, you know, the how as well. Because people need context for why they should act a certain way. To your point too, about, you know, the top two, three percent. I would say in most companies, the top performers, they do sell in versus sell out. But they've developed their own style over time, right? And it's something that's unique to them. This is the point I tried to make in a book is, you know, sales managers basically want everybody to comply to a process. Well, except you people who are really good, you do what you do, right? The point is they need to act that way with everybody. The help, they've helped those people get to where they were, hopefully, sales managers. So do it for the rest of the company, the rest of the team. Mm-hmm. Is Yeah, I always find it very interesting to, and I just saw this a couple weeks ago on a, a post somewhere, Someone was making the comment about, well, you know, sales managers could do a better job, but the thing is, they spend so much time with, you know, the mid to low performers that they just don't have time. And I'm like, actually, that's not my experience working with companies ever, is actually sales managers spend a disproportionate amount of their time with their top performers, because they think that's where they're going to achieve their success. Mm -hmm. And what happens is the middle tier and the lower tiers get ignored. And that's a huge problem. So... Yes, we need to lift all people in the profession and in a, a specific team. And I think one of the ways to do that is you you enable people to become this best version of themselves as a sales manager. So what I lay out in the book, I said these four pillars of selling in, connection, curiosity, understanding, generosity, is these are these are attributes we all have as, as human beings to some greater or lesser degree. We need to develop those as managers because this is how they more naturally and in, in a more human way interact with buyers and enable more likely outcome for them than they would acting some other way. So yeah, managers need to spend more time with those people and let them experiment. You know, this is a part that again is one of my pet peeves or drives me nuts is managers with the middle and lower tiers, they want them to be more compliant to their sales process, a little more rigidly managed in terms of their activity I understand. You're a little nervous about it. But the path forward with those people is to, as I said, enable them to build on their unique strengths, because I believe they all have it. We all do. And yeah, sort of follow the path that I've laid out in the book in that regard.
0: Hmm. I'm so mesmerized because (laughs) I'm literally just sitting here and I'm thinking about, you know, there's a popular sales methodology and I I won't call any names, Um, but they try to get everyone to act a certain way. Or if you're not this kind of salesperson, you're not going to be successful. So get everybody on the team to be this kind of salesperson and do it exactly this way. And I advocate for individualized coaching plans, right? Every single person on the team is a different person. And if you can level that middle tier up, just 10%. And then with the bottom tier, 10%, right? Your top tier, they're gonna do what they need to do. They don't need as much of your time. You need to focus on what you can do to, let me level them up. Let me level that person up. And once you start looking at each salesperson as a human being, not just a block on your revenue spreadsheet and say, this person needs to be better here. Let me help them in our coaching sessions do this. That is the way that we can sell without selling out.
1: Oh, absolutely. I tell people, so I write in the book is that the, um, Yeah, the job of a salesperson, it's not to persuade somebody to buy your product. Your job as a salesperson is to go out and listen to your buyer, understand what are the most important things to them, both in terms of the challenges they face and the outcomes they want to achieve, and then help them get that, right? That's our job as sellers. That's our job as a salesperson. As a sales manager, your job is not to force people to comply to a process. Your job is to, it's going to sound very familiar, it's to listen to your salespeople Understand what are the most important things to them in terms of you know, maybe the skills they need to uh, upskill or maybe the things that, the goals they want to achieve in their life, the outcomes they want to achieve in their career, and then help them get that. That's your job. Your job is to help your people get the things that are most important to them. And if you think it's anything else but that, then you're missing it because the path to your own success as a sales manager is doing just these things. Understand what's important to your sellers. Help them achieve them.
0: Yeah. I like to say, if your sales team is failing, you're failing, right? And so (laughs) if you can't help them get to where they need to go, then you are failing as a sales manager. And it's not about you being up there, getting your award and getting a pat on the back and like, yeah, you did so good this quarter. No, it is about knowing that all five, 10, 20 people on your team can be up on the podium and you can sit back and say, that is a reflection of me. My team is a reflection of me.
1: Well, absolutely. And to that point, right? As we all seen the reports from CSO Insights and from Bravado just came out with a report. You know, a majority of sales sellers are not hitting their quotas. So whose responsibility is that? Oh. It's just what you said. It is the manager's responsibility. Mm-hmm. And too many want to sort of point the fingers at the sellers and saying, well, they're not doing the work and so on. Well, okay, but that's still your responsibility. Yeah. Is And I think the way that managers need to look at it is assume that you are a manager of a manufacturing plant and you're making a product. So if 52% of the, the product coming off your assembly line didn't work to specification. How long would you hold your job? Hmm. Not long, right? Yeah. That's really what this is. This is, The sellers, I don't want to turn sellers into you know a number or something, but they are your product. You are shaping those people. Hmm. They're your responsibility. So if you're allowing salespeople, either virtually or, or physically, to go out and have conversations with customers... That are so ineffective that such a few percentage of them, a low percentage of them, actually attain quota, that's your responsibility.
0: Absolutely. And
1: now, as we said earlier, we don't necessarily enable sales managers to help their people the way they need to in that regard. So it's, yeah, we've got multiple steps in this. But yeah, we need to start looking at it as sales managers, really take it personally if people that we're responsible for aren't hitting their numbers.
0: Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times when we go in and we're working with companies within our consulting practice, you know, I'll say, hey, this is where your salespeople are. This is what they need. And a lot of times leadership will be like, oh, let's just get rid of them. They're all bad. Let's just replace them. They're not doing this. They're not doing that. And so I just I look each and every person in the eye, whether I'm on Zoom or in person, and I say, have you given each and every person on this screen a hundred percent of what they need to be successful? And one hundred percent of the time, they say no. So I'm like, right. you have to give them something before you say go away. If this is your fault, right? And we can talk about this all day, Andy, because this is actually like this is my heart. I talk about this all <laughs> the time: sales management enablement, right? And why it's they're the nucleus of the organization.
1: Well, but. Right, but we can't set people up for failure, and this is you know my concern. And so, right before the pandemic, I spoke to a, a group of CEOs. They were CEOs of portfolio company of this private equity firm, and I was presenting to them. And at one point, I said, "Well, let me ask you all a question." So, you know, who's this was toward the end of 2019. I said, "So, who here on the table is going to raise quotas this year?" Mm. Well, they all raised their hand. I said, "Okay, got it." And I said, "So, you know, how much?" And we sort of established sort of a baseline. I don't know, it was like 12, 13 percent on average. I said, great. Okay. So raise your hand if you've invested sufficiently this year in your sellers that, you know, their productivity has improved by 13%.
0: Dead
1: hmm. <laughs> hmm. silence. It, Ted literally silence.
0: like, Hmm. <laughs> mm,
1: wow. It's like, it's like we don't tie the ends together. It's like, sure, you want to grow, but you have to provide people something to be able to enable them to grow, right? It's, it's, how are you adding to their skills? How are you adding to their experience? How are you improving the level of coaching and management they get that can help them achieve at higher levels, whatever that dimension is, what are you doing? And too often at that, yeah, you know, we just raise the quotas regardless of mm-hmm. those things. And then we wonder why people get frustrated, why they quit, why they turn over quickly. You know, it's a situation that, that management and leadership are is oftentimes creating. So you have to look at the whole the whole picture.
0: Mm. Wow. We've had an amazing conversation, and uh, <laughs> I I yeah. do want to wrap up and, and ask you, okay. is there something, what's the thing that you're most excited about accomplishing personally or professionally? You talked about your kids and books and this amazing consulting practice, so I don't know how you're going to get just one, but give me the one.
1: You know, at this point in time, it's, I don't know, I mean, the podcast and the books, I think, but also, you know, my partner, in creating the podcast and in my business has been my son. Hmm. So again, as a parent, having the opportunity to watch your kids grow and mature and to have the opportunity to interact with them frequently um, daily as, cause we're working together. Uh, was, yeah, unexpected pleasure and, and bonus for everything I've done. And yeah, I just remember, yeah, I was a similar age and my son's in his mid thirties is, but yeah, I, I, I talked to my parents once a week, right? Mm-hmm. And they really had no idea what I was up to in my life uh, in terms of understanding my profession and what I was doing because it's at odds what they had done. Yeah, get a chance to share this with, and now my daughter works for me as well. So wow. that's a lot of fun.
0: That is amazing. I would say that is an amazing thing to be able to hang your head on, right? both of your kids, they've done their thing and now they've come back and and they're working in the business with you. That's
1: awesome. Yeah, and so far they don't hate me for it, so. (laughs)
0: Awesome, awesome, awesome. So Andy, what is the one best way that people can get in contact with you if they wanna chat with you or engage with you?
1: Sure, LinkedIn. So yeah, you can follow me on LinkedIn, connect with me. Please connect with me. That'd be great. Uh, message me uh, on LinkedIn as well. That's, that's funny. I, like many people, it's two inboxes, both my, my email and, and LinkedIn. But uh, LinkedIn is probably the easiest, most direct way at this point.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been an amazing conversation. Thank you for having me. And I would encourage anyone, please pick up a copy of Andy's book. I've read it. It is an amazing book. And I know that your leadership, if you're an individual contributor, wherever you fall within the sales organization, it's going to help you to become a better seller. So thanks again for your time and talent and expertise, Andy.
1: Well, thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun.
0: And that was another episode of the Science of Selling STEM. And remember, in all that you do, transform your sales. Until next time.
1: Thank you for joining us today on the Snack-Sized Sales Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe and leave us a review. Learn how to continue increasing your bottom line by getting simplified sales strategies delivered to your inbox weekly by going to www.snacksizedsales.com. Trust me, your bank account will grow and love you.